0: Listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at CBCSavannah.com. A couple real quick things before we jump in. Um, uh, Just we have three services at at, at CBC. Uh, Second and third, as you can see, because of COVID regulations and things. Second and third are most packed. If you are available, if you wake up at five thirty anyway, right? Don't turn on the news. Come to eight o'clock service, all right? Because we need some space in the uh, last two services, just so any our guests or people that are are new are not forced to, uh, last week we had to shut, you know, this during second service, we had to kind of let no more people in because we just didn't have space. And so we'd love for some of you to join the eight o'clock crowd. They are the most holy people in our church, um, just so you know. It's a, just, no, they, it, it's a little bit less crowded in here at eight, and obviously for obvious reasons, but if you're able and you, be, you feel like you could do that, we'd love for you to have you just free up some space to the later services, at least until some of the COVID regulations uh, and then we can start jamming this room again. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. If you're a member of CBC, and, and many of you are, um, you've committed to uh, to join us in many different ways. And one of the ways you've committed is to serve at this church. And the, and the idea for us in, in, a, in a world that, you know, a perfect world, which does not exist, but that if you're a member, you would attend a service and you would serve in a service if, that, if your family situation allows that. And so there's lots of needs on Sunday morning as, as things kind of uh, here are moving back into uh, full steam ahead with students in college and everything. Uh, two big needs on Sunday morning specifically are in the hospitality team and in CBC Kids. Um, and so, if you're a member and you're not engaged yet, and would uh, we need you to be uh, really, and you've committed to be, if you're a member, so we would ask you to join one of those teams, if possible. Um, you don't have to be a great teacher or anything. I mean, if if you're not a friendly person, well, let's counsel you, but then don't jump on hospitality. But I mean, uh, we, we do need people in those places, just so uh, we can start opening more classes up for kids. Um, you don't have to teach; we we have teachers, but we just need some help. And so. Uh, just grab an usher, fill out a connect card and say um, your name, your email, and greeting team or whatever. And we'd love to plug you in so you can use some gifts uh, and, and just serve the body. It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of the one another's. And so um, I'm not trying to guilt you, but be guilty if you're not doing anything. So, uh, but really, it's an opportunity for you to serve uh, this church. And this only works if the body is engaged, not if just the the Bill's engaged, because Bill can teach, but if nothing else is taking place, this is a lot of moving pieces. We're thankful for so many things, security, hospitality, coffee, kids, and we need you. So jump on one of those deals. All right, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to the book of Exodus. If you have a phone, you have a Bible, download the ESV app, you can do that. One of the things, if you're a guest, if you're kind of first time, second time, third time, the last couple of weeks have been a little bit unique because of Advent and stuff, but what we typically do is we work through books of the Bible here uh, what that means is there's 66 books in the Old and New Testament, and what we do is we start at the beginning of a book, and we work through the end of a book, and today you get to jump in with us on the beginning of that process. We usually get through, hopefully, about two books a year. We usually try to do one old and one new, and it's because we believe that God has spoken uh, and that he has given us his word, and so we just want to see what he has to say, and it enables us to see the whole counsel of God, enables us not to skip hard parts, uh, and so there's all sorts of benefits, and so we are going to do that today with a book called, Ready? Exodus, all right? Exodus, it is the second book of the Bible. If you're familiar with the Bible, you just kind of turn to the, uh, even if you're not, just turn to the front and you just, you'll just you eventually find Exodus. Um, great book. We're gonna be here for several months, so you can dig in. You are allowed at this church to read ahead and cheat. Please do, we love cheating in this way. So read ahead, next week we'll be in chapter two. If you stay ahead of us, you'll get more out of it. But... Um, the this is gonna be an exciting, hopefully, time for us. I think this is a very appropriate book for where we're at and what season. Um, a few months, a few years ago, uh, one of my favorite books, I mean, fiction books, I got a lot of favorite books, but this is one of my, my favorite fiction book. Hollywood came out and said they were gonna make a movie out of it, which for me is like loathsome because Hollywood never makes a movie that's as good as the book, except it's not as good, but the best attempt, Lord of the Rings, I'll give them that. Good attempt, uh, the Hobbit, <laughs> All right, so you see how they feel. Whenever Hollywood says they're gonna make a, a movie uh, out of a book, it's, it's 99% of the time a train wreck. If the BBC gets a hold of it, you got a better shot. All right, let's be honest, BBC's good, right? Uh, they do a pretty good job, but Hollywood, no. And just like I thought, they train wreck this movie. Um, and you know, that's what they usually do. And it's not that the movie was horrible. What usually happens is they just change something or they leave something out, right? The book is always better, it just always is. I mean, even Lord of the Rings, as good as those movies were, they're great. Where's Tom Bombadil? I want some Tom Bombadil. Some of you are like, who's Tom Bombadil? Read the book, all right? It's a classic, Right? I just need, I want it to be true to the book. Even the Narnia. I mean, the Narnia movie. Narnia is almost a perfect fiction book. I mean, how do you train wreck? The Voyage of the Dawn Trader. It's, it's, a, it's a tragedy to me. But they do it. They find a way, right? The book is always better. Even Even this, like Exodus, Hollywood's tried. I mean, they gave some pretty good efforts, right? The first attempt was in the 1920s. A couple of you were alive then, right? Okay, see, I'm just kidding. Uh, But there was a silent movie on the Ten Commandments. You've probably never seen it. I've never seen it either. The first one that we really know about is Charlton Heston, 1950s, the Ten Commandments, right? Pretty good movie. I mean, they changed it a little bit. Uh, You know, you got a little love story in there they throw in, you know, and really it's a bad name. Ten Commandments is a bad name. It's not about the Ten Commandments. It's, it, that's like one small piece, all right? So good attempt, um, you know, good effort. You get, an, you get a C, C plus. A couple of years back, you know, some of you are a little younger. You remember the Prince of Egypt, a little cartoon. Probably the most accurate biblically, right? And who does not like Val Kilmer Iceman as Moses? That's a good, that's a good choice, right? Okay, so that was a well done, you know. Uh, and then a few years ago, you had a train wreck, I mean, Christian Bale, love him as Batman, horrible, horrible as Moses in a movie called Gods and Kings. Do not watch it. It's horrible, all right? Because the book is always better. The book is always better. So we are going to spend the next several months looking at this narrative, this event, which is one of the greatest events in all the Bible, it's not the greatest, but it's one of them. It's, this is what, what the cross is in the New Testament, what Mount Calvary is in the New Testament. This was to the Old Testament. When we look back at the cross, when we say, how do we know God loves us? We look at the cross. How do we know we can trust God? We look at the cross. How do we know he's faithful and gracious and generous? We look at the cross. How do I find my identity in him? We look at the cross. That, for us, is what this was for the Old Testament saints. In fact, the prophets and the psalmists, they're constantly pointing people back to this event. How do you know God can be trusted? Look at the Exodus. How do you know he's good? Look at the Exodus. How can I find my identity in him? Look at the Exodus. How can I know he's gracious and faithful? Look at the Exodus. So it's a hugely significant event in the scripture, but also here's another reason it's significant. It pretty much parallels our stories, right? The, the story of the Exodus and the story that you're living, they're pretty much the same. We're gonna see if you're familiar with it. You have a bunch of people who were slaves, and they need a deliverer, one who is from them, but he's from outside at the same time, and he's gonna perform miracles, and they're gonna be delivered from death by the blood to life. They're gonna go through the water, the Red Sea, and they're gonna enter into the wilderness where God is gonna lead, provide, and protect, but then he's gonna enter into covenant. He's going to have them build a tabernacle where he can dwell in their midst right, as they walk in covenant with him. That's your story. You were a slave. You needed someone that was from you but from outside to be your deliverer who saved you from death to life through the blood. Then you came through the waters of baptism. You entered into covenant with God who dwells in your midst and leads you and protects you and guides you as you walk in this wilderness right now. It's, it's our story. And so it's significant for us to understand it and to grasp it and to study it. And so here's what we're gonna do today. All right, this is where we're going. I'm gonna unpack the first chapter which really is the setting of what's going on. But I'm gonna give you some background information whenever you're studying a book of the Bible. It's important to know who it's from, where it's to, what is going on in the back, you know, kind of the backdrop. uh, So you get a big picture idea of what this book is about. So I'm gonna give you the background and the setting. And I wanna give you three main ideas that we're gonna see as we work through this book. Three things that we need, need to understand, need to grasp that are gonna constantly come up as we work through this book of Exodus together, all right? So the book of Exodus let me give you a little bit of background. It is part of what is known as the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five books. It consists of how many books? You're a genius. Very good. You went to public school. Thank you very much. Pentateuch, five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five. It is the second of five books. It breaks into very simply two halves. Okay, so chapters one through 18, it's the actual exodus. Takes place mostly, primarily around the area of Egypt. The second half of the book uh, is about the covenant in which God is creating with his people in which they enter in, where you see him give him the 10 commandments. You see him... Give them the tabernacle and the plans, and they build it, and all these things. And so two real simple halves, and we're going to work our way through. We're going to see the exodus itself, and then we're going to see God entering into covenant with his people. There's one real overarching idea we're going to continually see. Uh, You're going to see this phrase repeated 17 times in the book, where God wants his people to know that he is Yahweh, that he is the Lord Right? He not only wants them, he's gonna have Egypt know it. You see it, just one example. I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God. I brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Right? So we're gonna see in this book, what it, who is God? And what happens when you oppose him? And what happens when you follow him? And what happens when you're walking through the wilderness? And how do I find my identity in him? And what, what does he call me to? And all these things, he wants us to know and he's going to show us that he is Lord and there is no other, right? So that's where we're going. This book was written by a man named Moses, very famous guy in the Bible. We'll see him next week. Uh, You go to higher education and critical scholarship, there are gonna be a lot of people that question uh, whether or not Moses wrote this book and they're gonna have all these crazy theories, J-E-D-P, all blah, 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 blah. Let me just spare you the details. Moses wrote the book. How do I know Moses wrote the book? Because Jesus said Moses wrote the book. So I don't care what Bart Ehrman or all these other guys say, Moses wrote the book. Jesus says, have you not read in the book of Moses? That's enough, higher education for me. I know I'm a PE major, pretty simple. Jesus said it, I believe it, right? So Moses wrote this book. He wrote all five of these, these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote them during the time of his life. The Exodus itself took place probably around the 1,446 books. B.C., about 1,500 years before Jesus, Um, and the book of Exodus is basically the sequel to Genesis, so if Genesis is, you know, rocky one, then Exodus is rocky what? Again, we're on top of it today, right? Whatever sequel you, you know, it's the first part, Genesis, the second part is is the sequel. It picks up right where it lets off. It's really one big story, Okay, just one big narrative about what God is doing uh, with the patriarchs. We, in the spring, if you were here, we studied the life of Abraham, Isaac, or actually Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we, really from Genesis 20 through the end. So uh, if you are, were here then, you kind of are familiar with what happened. If you're not, let me give you kind of the, what just happened. You know, you're watching a show, you know, me and my, my one of my sons are, getting back into 24 right now. And so at the beginning of every episode, it's like previously on 24. And it gives you like the 60 second, you know, uh, back. to Let me give you the 60 second, what has happened up to this part right before we pick up and then we'll just jump in, all right? So you have a man named Abram who is 75 years old. He's got no kids. God shows up and says, hey, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. I want you to go to this land. I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. you can have so many kids that you can't even count them do not have any kids yet, 24 years later, he still doesn't have any kids, but God shows up and says, okay, next year, you're gonna have a kid, he's 99, his wife's 79, they both think it's funny, so they call the kid funny, laughter, yixak, Isaac, it means laugh, All right? Isaac grows up, he finds himself a little sweetie, and he marries her, she's pregnant, she's like, man, this kid's killing me, and God says, that's because it's not one kid, it's two kids. And the older will serve the younger. You're gonna have twins, congratulations. So she has twins. First one comes out, he's all red and hairy, so they call him Red, Esau. And the second one comes out, he's grabbing his brother's foot. So they call him Surplanter, Deceiver, Yaakov, Jacob, which means liar. They grow up, they don't like each other. When they get to a certain point, Jacob steals his brother, older brother's birthright. He steals his older brother's blessing. His brother gets mad, wants to kill him. So Jacob runs off. Runs off to his distant cousins. He marries a pair of sisters. Not a good move. Has a bunch of kids, 13, 12 brothers and one sister. Um, He eventually goes back to the land. And on his way back, he has a wrestling match with an angel who turns out to be God. And at the end of that wrestling match, God says, your name is no longer Yaakov, liar, deceiver, surplanter. It is now Israel, one who strives with God. So he goes back into the land. He's got 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. These brothers hate number 11. Number 11's name's Joseph. They hate him because dad you know, went down to the Dillards and bought him a special coat that no one else got. And so he's wearing a special dealer's jacket. Everyone else is not. They are jealous of him. He has a couple of dreams. that says, by the way, I'm going to be in charge one day. They think you're crazy. So they we're going to kill him, but they don't kill him. They just sell him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. They assume he's dead. It's been many years, and while he's there, he kind of rises to the top of one house, and he gets thrown in jail, falsely accused. Then he interprets the dream of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a dream about there are going to be seven years of famine and seven years of, of plenty, and Joseph's able to interpret that and the Pharaoh says, I need someone to be in charge of this. You're in charge. And so he goes from jail to being second in charge of the nation. He, he saves the nation by, by planning real well during the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine hit and who gets hungry? His little brothers back home. And they come down to get themselves some food because everyone hears about the food in Egypt. And he sees them and he's all bald and looks Egyptian so they don't recognize him. He puts them through a series of tests to see if they're really changed men or not. And at the end, he reveals himself to be, I am your brother. And they freak out. They're like, he's gonna kill us. And he's like, I'm not gonna kill you. God did this. It was all meant for good so that I could save you. So he says, go get dad. Brings the whole family down to Egypt. Pharaoh says, man, it's your family. Let's give them the land of Goshen, which is the greatest land in Egypt. And that's where they live, right? Right? That's previously on 24, okay? That's where we pick up. The Israelite. all the Hebrews that exist are living now in Goshen, and it's going well, right? They're thriving. They have a great relationship with the Egyptians and the Pharaoh. Verse one, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. This is the brothers of Jacob. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all the descendants of Jacob were 70. Underline that in your mind, in your Bible, 70 people. All right, Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, right? So they live happily ever after there. They're passing on their businesses. Things are going super well. How well, verse seven, the people of Israel were fruitful. I mean, there it's exploding, population explosion. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled. And if you know your book of Genesis, Uh, You know, your author Moses this harkens back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 where God tells Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to have dominion. And that's exactly what God's people are doing. And it's going well. And they're rocking it like docking. And it's awesome. And then life happens. Right? Isn't that just the way it is? Everything's going well. You just get the job. You just start a new company. You just get married. Whatever. Everything's going great. Got great momentum. And then, Life happens, COVID, or whatever. Now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, right? It's not that he didn't know about Joseph. The idea was that he didn't care, right? And we don't know which king this was. I mean, you can, talk, you can look at Egyptian history is kind of kind of shady at this point, like who and when and where. Uh, we know that there was a rebellion against the Hyksos. Uh, dynasty, the 18th dynasty came in. The Hickses were actually Semitic and they were friends of the Jews, and so it could have been that. And this new guy was part of the 18th dynasty, or we, we don't know exactly. We just know that a new pharaoh is in town and he could care less about what Joseph did, right? We could care less. Kind of like, you know, maybe some of our young generation, like, yeah, George Washington, <laughs> I don't care. Right? I don't care what JFK did. I don't care. In England, after Churchill basically led the nation through the war, they voted him out right afterwards. Like, oh, thanks for Mr. Winston Churchill. You're done. It's just that short memory. What have you done for me lately? And so he says to his people, behold, or see, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty. How many people came down? 70. By the end of this deal, when they leave Egypt, there's going to be at least 600,000 men, which means there's probably between two and three million Hebrews, that's a lots of multiplions. 400 years, millions. That's a lot of people. And the Egyptians look around and they say, hey, we gotta deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. He, he, they are a threat to uh, this is important now. They are a threat to their future, to their economy, to their money, to their security. He says, if they, if they side with our enemies, they could, they could go the other way, and then, and then they attack us, and then we're done. Or they could just leave, and then we lose all, all these people. So, so we got to deal shrewdly. So what are we going to do? They don't have a military. Egypt does. And so they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They enslave them. They make them do all their hard labor. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Rameses. The idea is let's kill them with hard work. Let's, let's oppress them at such a point where they're so weary and so tired and they can't take care of their own businesses and their own fields because they're building stuff for us. The last thing that dad wants to do is have more kids because he doesn't have enough food to feed himself and he's so tired, and he's so weary. So we'll, we'll weed them out like that. We'll oppress them, we'll treat them harshly and that's what they do, right? That's what they do. But the funny thing happens. The tighter they squeeze... The more they grow. Look what happens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. And remember, this is over time. Now, you don't just like, this doesn't happen like in a week. This is years, years and years and years, years of oppression. It takes a long time to build a city over years. And they're like, we have been oppressing these people for how long? And they still keep growing. And so they were in dread. It's a word that means they're sick to their stomach. They look around and there's fear. They don't. They can't. They don't understand what is going on, right? It's it's making them crazy. And so they double down instead of saying, "We well, got to try a new strategy." They double down. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Yet. You can jump down to verse 20 and see God keeps growing them. God keeps growing them. God keeps growing them. And let's just acknowledge, this is, this is not the norm. Normally, you oppress, you try to crush a people, uh, they get crushed. Not these people. It has the opposite effect. The tighter you squeeze, the more they grow. What is going on? Why? And this is the question. What Pharaoh and the Egyptians are missing is that X factor that we know but they didn't, and it's the God factor. God, the reason why you can try to crush and oppress these people and it doesn't work is because it's it's about God. And here's where we're going. Here's the first thing that we need as we kind of study this 40 chapter book and we need to grasp that we need a big or a bigger view of God. That's what we need. All right, you're not a limited, not a God in a box kind of thing. You need to have a vast, big view of this God. He is the Lord. And this book is gonna give it to us. On the surface, it, you might think, this is just a story about Egypt versus, Egypt versus Israel. Egypt, bad guy, you know, Israel, good guy. He, Egypt, antagonist, Israel, protagonist. That is not what this story is about. This is a story about Egypt versus Yahweh. This is, this is Egypt versus God and it ain't going to go well for Egypt he is the protagonist he is the big God who is going to deliver his people and the reason why they can be crushed and oppressed and God is still blessing is because of him he is the one in control this is a met, this message I, I think for some of us is very apropos it's just, To quote French, it's the only French words I know except French fries, all right? Because some of you this week are losing your mind. You are, I know, because I see it on social media, which is why I just blocked you. Because you cannot fathom what is going on in this world, right, and you gotta come to the place that you believe that God is the one it was in control. Do you really, do you think the United States Senate is in control, really? Do you really think the Supreme Court is supreme? Do you think the president is in control? I, you, gotta, you gotta get beyond that. The only reason your president is your president is because God ordained him to be your president. He ordained your mayor, he ordained your, God is in control. And you can take that to the highest level, you can take it to the lowest level. Your teacher that doesn't like you and it picks on you, God ordained that teacher, your boss, your supervisor, your first sergeant—you know, the president of your HOA has been picking on you because your mailbox is crooked. Whatever. All those people ordained by God to be there, and He is sovereign over them. He is God. He is bigger than them. I read it, somebody put this on there, something this week, it was Twitter or whatever, but I thought it was it was. It's about the only thing I thought that was good that I saw. It said, if your comfort this week has been in the governing power of men, then today was very difficult. This was Wednesday. But if your comfort is in the governing power of God, it's just a Wednesday. I'm like, amen, Wednesday. Got me some perk coffee and a study for a sermon. That's exactly right. All right. And, and so you gotta, you gotta grasp that. That God is in control, that God is sovereign. And here's the $10 billion question then, right? This is the one where, this is where we wrestle with. so if God is in control and God is sovereign and God has ordained this, then why are his people suffering, right? I mean, let's just think about it. This is God's chosen people, nation of Israel, correct? God put them in Egypt, did he not? He sent them there to save them, and now they're oppressed and slaves. And you say, well, if you're so God, why is that happening? Aha, that is the question, right? That is the question. This is why you have to have a big view of God. Because the tendency of us is to see life as big and God as small. Your circumstances, fill in the blank, whatever it is. I'm still single, Uh, uh, we don't don't have children, I lost my job, I I have bad health, whatever it is, that circumstance becomes larger than life, and when it does, God becomes small. He becomes small, right? And we think everything that is going on here is all that's going on. As a kid, I don't know why I remember this, but I do. Um, I had this weird view and there's probably some psychological term for it. I just call it being a dumb kid. But I believed that the only thing that was happening in the world was happening where I was. So like, uh, if, if you weren't in the room with me or in the, you know, then you must've been like frozen, like night museum or something. I don't know, all right? So my, you know, all my family lives in South Carolina and I live in Philadelphia. They must've been like frozen until Thanksgiving till we came and visited. Like, oh no, thank you for freeing us. Uh, you know, I don't know why I thought that, but I did. I just believed I was the center of everything. I couldn't fathom that things were going on beyond us. You think that's the most childish thing I ever heard of. So is it that you think that your life is so big that that it's the central point of the universe, that God is out of control in it, right? A big view of God uh, believes that he is sovereign over this. And look, you may not like, this is hard, you may not like the timetable and you may not like the circumstances, But here's the thing. Last time I checked, the sovereign God of the universe don't have to ask permission from you. And he doesn't have to fill you in on what he's doing. Oh sorry, Bill. I thought, you know, you're pretty important. I better tell you what I'm doing. Is this okay? Is it okay if I do this? Yeah, God, it's fine. How silly. Your kids, maybe, maybe in your house they don't like, mom, I really like this for dinner. Oh, great. You know what you're having? What I made. Right, and that's just parents. This is God. He doesn't have to fill you in or get permission. He's God. And so if you step back and you stop seeing how, how big your life feels and you start seeing how big God is, what you realize is God is doing something. He's doing more than you can fathom. In fact, he's got like 55 things going on just in this passage that he's doing. Meanwhile, he's still upholding the universe. Right, that's a big God. So what is he doing here? Let me—he's doing exactly what he's told them already. He was going to do. They just didn't pay attention. In Genesis fifteen, God told Abraham, "Okay, here's here's what's going to happen, Abraham. Know for certain that your offspring—by the way, you don't have kids yet—but your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. Check that off the box, right? And they will become servants. Man, we missed we missed that fine print, right? And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. Uh, missed that too. But I will bring judgment on that nation." Uh, We we like judgment. And you will come out with great possessions. Okay, we like that part. Uh, You, Abraham, are gonna go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in old age. They're gonna come back here in the fourth generation. Here's why. Here's why they can't come back now. Because the Amorites aren't bad enough yet. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The people that are living in Canaan right now, the Amorites, he says, they're bad, but they're not bad enough for me to judge them yet. So I'm gonna wait, and that means you're gonna stay until they're bad enough, and then I'll send you back and use them as an agent of my judgment. Because I am patient, right? I am patient with people, and so they're gonna get bad enough, then I'm going to judge them. But what about us? We're sitting here, I'm doing something. And, and it's not just that he's doing that. There's a ton of little moving pieces here. I mean, he's, he's talking about the Amorites. He's talking about the Egyptians. He's talking about Israel. You forget, when they do go back in a couple hundred years after the beginning of this, there's, there's a lady in, in Jericho, and her name is Rahab, and she grew up to be a prostitute, right? And she actually saves the spies, and so she becomes a follower of the one true God. And so the Israelites rescue her, and Rahab, she ends up marrying a nice guy named Salmon after the fish, And her and Salmon have a little boy. And they're like, oh, you're so cute. We're going to call you Boaz. And Boaz marries a a pagan Moabite named Rahab. I mean, excuse me, named Ruth. And Ruth becomes the great grandmother of a guy named David, who is the king, who is in the line of the Messiah. And that's 100 years from now. If God sends him back now, we miss Rahab, we miss Ruth, we miss all these people. Because God is doing something and we can't see it until we step back and see God is big. That's just a little bit of what he's doing. So what does God do in the United States? I got no clue. But here's what I do know. I read the end. Number one, God wins. Number two, I don't see a verse about the United States of America anywhere. Now maybe we are, and we're probably one of those nations that come against Israel and against the lamb and and, and get smoked, but we're not in there. So I don't know. But I know this, God's kingdom goes forward. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And I know God is in the middle of a cosmic battle right here, which he wins, but understand this. This whole thing is just Satan versus God, ultimately. Pharaoh is just a pawn in the hands of, of Satan. Remember, we've studied in 1 John that he's he is the prince of this world, right? He's, he's and he, And ever since Genesis chapter 3, The seed of the woman, aka Jesus, and the serpent have been battling, and the serpent has been trying to usurp and stop the seed of the woman, and he can't. He tries to corrupt the nation of Israel by having them intermarry with a bunch of people so that the messianic line is gone. God deals with that. He tries to get Herod to kill the babies in Bethlehem. God deals with that. He tries to get Esther, during the time of Esther, the the Persians, to to kill all the Jews. God deals with that. He's constantly rescuing. He's constantly saving. He's constantly moving. He tries to get Abraham to sell off Sarah so that she'll, she'll have a baby with a and, an and and God is constantly moving his progress forward and he is stopping the enemy and that's, that's just what's going on here because he's big and when you have a big view of God you get that and when you have a big view of God you understand this too here's another hard lesson for us that you can be living under the crushing load of a life that's, that's hard and at the same time still be being blessed and that does not feel like it but they are slaves and oppressed and tired and weary and God is still blessing isn't he? And you got to you got to stand back and see sometimes why why God that way. Well, here's here's a couple things. They got to be a lot of people, and they got they have to have some time because when they get into the land, it's going to be forty years where they have to conquer. It's it takes it takes a lot of people to conquer a land. And if they went back with like thirty five dudes, I don't care if they're all the Terminator. It's gonna it's, you can't do it. You need millions of people to fill this land. And so God is waiting till the time where they can do that. They also got to be kind of tough because you're going to be in the wilderness 40 years then you're going to be fighting for 40 years. God is hardening them and preparing them so that they can go in the land and be warriors for him. Here's the, here's the bigger lesson that God is doing. God is making his people distinct, set apart for himself. If they stay in Egypt and everything's hunky-dory, why do you want to ever leave? Why would you leave if you're rich and, you're, and your life is easy and we're living on the Nile and it's great I and mean, we got money, we got good weather, you know, we can go swimming as long as the crocodiles aren't there. If life is easy and good, why would they ever want to go back to the land? But that's not what God is doing. God is setting apart a people for Himself, a nation for Himself that is supposed to be different and distinct. And one of the greatest ways God makes us distinct is He brings heat to our lives. Right, Because the light shines better in darkness. And I know that's not a popular lesson for America because we've never really faced tribulation and trial in the church. But that's not been the story for most of our brothers and sisters for their entire existence. And I'll tell you one of the benefits, I mean, I don't, want, I don't want oppression, I can tell you. I don't want persecution. But one of the benefits of it is that it sets apart the tear and the wheat. You get to see who's the legit and the real deal, and who's not. Right? It'll separate that, and that's what God is doing for His people. He's he's setting apart a people for Himself, right? And 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 it's a great opportunity for them to be distinct and holy. And they, part of the time, will be. Right? Again, God is bigger than the moment, and we need to grasp that. And we're going to have to have a big view of God as we work through this book. Let me continue. I wish I could say it gets better. It does not get better. It gets worse. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one whose name was Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, you shall live. Brutal. There's two midwives mentioned. There's probably more than that. These are probably kind of like the queen midwives, you know, because there's a lot of people, so more than two ladies involved here but basically he says look we're trying to deal with this this is the best way to get ahead of this you know i mean it's not going to help today but 15 20 years from now it'll really eliminate we kill all the boys let the girls live we can use them as slaves or we can use them as servants or whatever but we're going to kill all the boys so midwives you're in charge if it's a boy kill them if it's a girl let them live right how brutal and 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 i have to let me just take a moment um, and I can't, as a pastor, as your pastor, as someone who is committed to the scripture and the whole counsel of God, I cannot uh, n- not mention uh, in a passage like this, talking briefly just about the, the abortion issue and the Holocaust of, of that in our country. And I know this is a, this is a tender issue. Here's why. And, and under, uh, 45 and unders in our country, 25% of, the, of that demographic has, has had an abortion. One of four. Uh, which means in our church, probably 100, 150. So it is some of y'all's stories. And this is not uh, to condemn you or to be judgmental of you in any way because Jesus died for sin, all sin, uh, right? All sin is is. When, when cast upon him, he pays for all sin. So, this is not meant to be condemning or, or hurtful or wicked you. Your sin is worse than everyone else. That's not it. But what we have to do is the, as the people of God is we cannot buy into the garbage we hear in the world and not say this is, just a, this is just a political issue. It's a political difference. It isn't. It is not. If you take the scripture seriously, and we do, this is a sin issue. It is, it, is a, it, is, it is an abomination. As much as killing the babies. You say, well, well, those who were born, this is not, you, you can't play that game. You can, you know, you can use all sorts of, Well, it's a, it's a fetus, it's a this, it's a that. The scripture will not allow you to do that because number one, I can give you multiple examples, but I, just John the Baptist, six months in his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. I can give you David who says, that God knit me in my mother's womb before I was born, you knew me. I could, Jeremiah, who's called to be a prophet before he was born. There's all sorts of places there, right, that I can go and show you that this is not just a, you know, a blob of cells. This is a person. Personhood has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with uh, you know, capabilities or where you live. Personhood is based on the image of God. Those made in the image of God have value. Why? Because Jesus died for them. Jesus made them. This is why, as much as I love dogs, no dog is as valuable as a person. Why? Because it's the image of God. And we defend the image of God, whether they're 98 and can't do anything for themselves, or 18 days old in the womb. They all have the same value. It has to. It's based on the Imago Dei. And so you can't say, well, it doesn't matter here. It's just a choice. It's just a this. No, you don't get to do that. Not with the Bible. You just can't. Cannot validate it. It matters to God and it matters to his church. And just a couple of things. I mean, this is, we, 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 everyone's you know, scared of COVID and all these things about COVID. And, and COVID has been devastating to our, to, our, uh, to, our, uh, to our world. 1.8 million people died. One person dying is a tragedy, but 1.8 million people dying of COVID in the world. That's tragic. But let me just tell you, the number one cause of, of death in, in the world Forty-four million babies aborted last year. That's a lot more than COVID. 44 million. All right. So let's 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 be let's be fair there and, and own that deal. And the same reason, by the way, that people now uh, choose abortion is the same reason Pharaoh was doing it. Security, comfort, what about my financial this? I can't afford it. I can't I won't be able to do this. It's all about me. It's about exalting myself and it costs someone else. So as a church we would say, hey, we're pro-life. And that doesn't just mean we're anti-abortion. We are pro-life, which means we, we, do, we give a, a ton of money to folks that need adoption help. We do that as a church. That's in our budget. We have uh, folks are doing fostering. We support ministries that aren't just pro-life before, but those who uh, help single moms. We, we do all sorts of things. Pro-life means life in general. If you're looking to adopt and you're like, hey, we need help, come talk to us. All right? We'd love to be a part of that. Like right? we, we, we set that apart for that. And we've helped folks in our church do that. But we are not just pre, uh, pre-birth pro-life, we are pro-life. We help widows and orphans and we wanna help uh, see people supported. That, that's what we're talking about. And if you uh, are, are serious with the scriptures, you have to care about these things. This is not a political issue, it's not a party issue. This issue should trump, by the way, how much taxes you get and your healthcare, I'm just saying. This is more important than your money. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is life. All right, I'm off my soapbox, but it's just, it is dangerous ground when the church starts calling that which is evil good. It's just dangerous, right? And so the, the scripture is clear. When you, woe to us when we call what is evil good. All right, what we need is some shipwrecks and some puas. Right, verse 17, the midwives feared God. They did not do what the king of Egypt commanded. Does he, did they not know he could kill them? Yep. Did he not know that he could torture them? Yep. Why didn't they do it? They feared God. God, right? They feared God. They, they, they valued what God thinks more than what man thinks. In the words of Jesus, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, they have nothing more they can do. I warn you whom to fear, fear him, who after he has killed you, you can, has the authority to cast you into hell. He said, there's a higher person here than just the king. They feared God, right? And so they obeyed God, right? That's huge. And I know... And here's, here's the challenge for us. We love when someone disobeys the government. Yeah, stick it to the king, right? And, and a lot of us are like, yeah, I can't wait. I'm ready. Ready to rebel. And, and I would say this, because there's a whole, like, when can, the question I always get asked is, well, when is it right to disobey? When do I get to rebel? It's the wrong question. We're always ask. we're always looking for the escape clause. The the answer to that, I would say, is when the government tells you to sin, then you can say humbly, like Daniel, we're not gonna eat that food. I mean, we're not gonna bow down. You can throw us in the fire, but we're not gonna do it. They weren't sticking it to the man. They were humble, and they said, we have to obey God. This is the apostle, we have to obey God. So if that's your heart, I don't think we're there yet. Now, if the government says, Bill, you have to marry a same-sex couple, I'll say, I cannot do that, I'm sorry. Now, you can take away our tax-free status, that's fine, but I cannot do that because the scripture does not allow me to do that. All right, there's, it, that that's, that's an example of where we're going. And we're not there yet. Let me just say this. I got strong opinions. Look, if you talk to me privately, I don't, I don't give my political stuff up here much because that's, this is a place where I honor Jesus. But I have strong opinions. I don't care what you think about masks. Pro-mask or masks are not a sin issue. The 11th commandment is thou shalt or shalt not wear masks. All right, it's just not. No, I'm... Look, we could debate it whether it works or not. I I got opinions. I'm not gonna tell you my opinion. You're gonna have to take me to lunch to get it. It's gonna have to be expensive lunch. Um, (laughs) But I'll tell you this. It's not a sin issue. There's a lot of things that aren't a sin issue. If it's against scripture, it's a sin issue, all right? You can get mad at me and write at me on Facebook. I'll just block you anyway. So let's go on. Here's the thing. If you're gonna have uh, a big view of God, you also have to have a small view of man. And that's what they do. When you, that which you follow and, 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 and fear the most is that which would you obey. Uh, they fear God and they're seeking his approval. We live, this is a huge need for us. We have an approval seeking culture. I mean, it's all over the place. All we care about is what other people think. This is why there's so few leaders and there's a lot of people in authority because half the people in authority want to pander to those people under them, make them happy. Let me give you a spoiler alert. Uh, in a, just a few chapters, the people of Israel who were enslaved, they were crushed, they want to go back to enslaving and crushing. Why? Because they don't get onions. They don't get leeks. They're, they're so fickle, and the only people who are like, no, we need to follow God are Moses and Levi. Millions of people want to go back. Who's right? Moses and Aaron. You, you, can't, you can't stand if, uh, for, for Jesus if you're going to always care about what everyone else thinks, and this is hugely Scary for our kids. Let me, let me tell you, this right here, this is an approval-seeking device. Not only does you have access to the world's garbage on this thing, but this is all about approval. I gotta get likes. I gotta get streaks. I gotta get this. I gotta see who who's following me. Who's this? Who's that? Who's this? I gotta show people. Look, I want to get approval. I want to be delightful. I want everyone to like me. Blah blah, blah 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 blah. This right here, that's it. And it's devastating, especially our young women, because they want to be liked and desired and seen and this and that and the other. And it's enslaving us, but yet we're addicted to it, and it's destroying us. And I get to see, they, I didn't get invited to that party, and now I'm sad, and all the anxiety and the stress. This is why we take the kids' phones away when they go to camp, and at first they're like, no, but then they're like, ah. It's just a stress relief. They don't have to worry about who's following them and who's liking them and who's this and that. I don't just filter this, right? And I don't have the solution to this, by the way. I'm a parent, and I got four kids, and you know, I'm not. You know, I know the solution is not giving your sixth grader a phone with unfiltered access to everything. You're crazy if that's you, right? And I'm not trying to be offensive, but that's craziness if if you have any clue of what's going on in the world. Uh, but I know you got to stay engaged. You got to know what's going on. You got to look for their, you know, secret Snapchat and all these other things. You got to stay on top of it, parents, and pray hard. But here's the, big, the bigger thing: you don't need to seek the approval of men. You seek the approval of God. We ain't make it as our our goal Paul says to please God while we're in there while we're here that's our goal and that means you got to stand alone sometimes it means you're gonna get broken up with that means you're not gonna get the promotion all those things that's okay the closer to return to Jesus the heat's gonna get turned up and the church is gonna be brighter and that's what he says all right let's continue because I'm running long but this is last service so I don't care um so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said what's going on why don't you do this And this is awesome. This is a little humor, a little Hebrew humor. Uh, The midwives say, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, they are vigorous and they give birth. Basically saying, you know, you Egyptians, you gotta have the epidural and all. You know, these Hebrews, man, they're in the middle of playing rugby. They give birth and they just keep playing. I mean, they're just like, and we don't even get there. I mean, they have the baby. The baby's three years old by the time we even get there. "And, and, And so what do you do with that, right? And so God dealt well with the midwives. And there's a lot of ink spilled, and you can go deal with it and read it and Google it yourself. Well, the Hebrew, they lied. The midwives lied. Liar, liar's pants on fire, midwives. It doesn't say they lied. Maybe they lied. Maybe they're like, oh, we're just going to try to get there, but they're really slow, and they take the long way around. Oh, sorry, the babies weren't born. Here's the thing. God blessed them, and the people multiply. And he gave them families. And why is that significant? Because midwives in that days, a lot of them were barren, a lot of them were single. And so he blesses them. He said, how does God bless them if they lied? Well, how does God bless you when you lie? You're like, I don't lie. Yeah, you liar. you do. The point is not... God honors their obedience. Is it, was, is it a lie for you to sneak Bibles into North Korea and for the high Jews in World War II and for our brothers in China to, to be hiding right now? You can deal with that in your community groups this week. Congratulations, have fun. All I know is God honors them and he makes them famous. They're famous. What's the name of Pharaoh? I got no clue. What's the name of the midwives? Pua and Shiprah? They go down in history and in infamy and they will be there forever because the word of God endures forever. Need a big view of God, need a small view of man. Last thing, Pharaoh commanded the people, every son that's born to the Hebrews cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It gets brutal. It gets even further broken. Now you're walking down the street, an Egyptian woman just grabs your two-year-old and throws him into the Nile. Talk about a, a dark time to live. And it just is a reminder in the brokenness of the world that we need a deliverer, we need a redeemer. That's what this book's about. That's what the entire Bible is about. But we need one greater than Moses, who one who's worthy of more glory than Moses, one who is not a servant, as the writer of Hebrews says, but is a son, and his name is Jesus. And there's a little hint here that Moses is the deliverer. They're gonna throw him in the Nile. Guess who's coming out of the Nile next week? One whose name means drawn out. Moses means drawn out he points us to Jesus. And so the bigger question we'll follow is when this deliverer, Jesus, shows up and he says, take up your cross and follow me, are you gonna follow him? Are you gonna have a big view of him? Of him being the sovereign one of the universe? And so that'll be the questions we ask. I know I'm long, that's why I said go to eight o'clock service, you get a shorter sermon. Let me pray, you guys stand up and we'll think about these things and reflect through singing. Father, help us to have a, a grand view of who you are and what you have done, I pray that we would shine bright in a world of darkness, that we would be peace. You say, blessed are the peacemakers. You should be called sons of God. Uh, that would be us. Um, that we would, um, as, as as things get closer to when you return, when in the latter days, all these things will happen, that your church will shine bright, that us and those like it uh, will we'll let our, light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify you. I pray you'll give us peace. Uh, Thank you for Jesus, our deliverer, who gives us hope. It's in his name I pray.